This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The rest of the people were fired on after they threw either rocks, bottles, frozen water bottles, uh, bottles containing bodily fluids at them, and uh, they, they responded. That's important context. I appreciate that, Dennis Ferris. Thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. Banfield starts now. Welcome to Thursday, uh, Friday Eve, as I like to call it. And if you watch the show, you know that. Uh, so good to have you. If you watch the show a lot, you know how many times I have said these words. Um, 1122 King Road is going to be demolished. I've said it probably at least three different times with certitude. And then I have been proven wrong. Uh, I was right at the time I said it, but then the decision was made to change the plan. Because it's political. 1122 King Road is the place where those kids were killed. The four Idaho students, University of Idaho kids, innocent, murdered in their beds. Brian Koberger arrested, still waiting to find out when that trial is going to happen. Quadruple murder trial. So the house, I mean, as you can imagine, the house is it's a crime scene, but it's also a very significant piece of evidence. Hard fought over. They announced last year it was going to be torn down, and then they paused it. Then they announced again in the summer, and... They paused it, and then they announced it again for the fall, and they paused it. And now we have a date, and it's two weeks from tonight. And it's official. It is going to happen. They say it is final, um, and here's why. Because today and tomorrow, Brian Koberger's lawyers are in there. They got to go see. They got to visit, photograph, measure, all the things that defense lawyers and prosecutors and police like to do. I just find it bizarro that here we are, three iterations later, people are still wanting to go in and take a look-see. So those families who maybe said, don't do it so quickly, maybe they had a really good point because there's still apparently work that needs to be done, right? Including today and tomorrow. I can say this about the guy on your screen right now. He's not going. Whether it would be his first time in that house or his second, he's not going. He's in jail. But those lawyers and the investigators for his team, they get to go. I'm going to explain all of that because Brian Enton is going to be on the show live. Uh, and we're going to do a full breakdown on what's happening. Especially, like, why now? Why such a big surprise? So then there, the Gabby Petito story, that was so gripping to us, right? We, we just couldn't shake the Gabby story. Just such an innocent young woman on her way across the country um, with her boyfriend. It just looked awesome, that road trip, till it didn't. Uh, because he came home, she didn't. So that is maybe why Katie Ferguson is, is getting into my DNA. And I think that's because Katie Ferguson also decided on a cross-country trip with her boyfriend, this time two little kids that they both share. He came back. So did the kids. No Katie. No word about Katie. And so up until now, we've been shocked that he hasn't been arrested. We thought it took a long time for police to arrest Brian Laundrie, and they didn't because he killed himself. So now what about Katie Ferguson's ex? 
sometimes on, sometimes off again, boyfriend. Why hasn't he been charged? Why is it taking a long time? And then something happened. And we have reason to believe that that all is about to change. So I'm going to explain that in a moment. Then also, uh, you know how when divorce gets ugly and, and custody gets even uglier, um, some couples can resort to the worst thing possible, and that is trying to take a hit out on the other. So there's a story in Kentucky where this kind of thing happened, and I know I've told you that story before, but tonight it's different. I mean, it hits real different because the hitman that was allegedly uh, being hired was with the FBI. Unless you think this is just one more of those cases for like Darwin's dumbest criminals, uh, the person arrested, let me put it this way. A lot of uh, parents out there are going to be looking for a new doctor for their kiddos. Pediatrician, well-educated, well-respected, well-regarded, and well, well, wealthy. So that's coming up, too. I'm going to tell you all about that case. I'm going to start with this. Two weeks from tonight is December 28th. And I'd like you to circle the date on your calendar because that is the date that was just announced today for the long, delayed, fiercely debated demolition of 1122 King Road. That's in Moscow, Idaho. By now, I think you know that address. It is the house where those four University of Idaho students were murdered in their beds 13 months ago. And I know what you're thinking. We've been here before. We've heard it before several times. But the university president says this time it is definitely happening, and he should know since the school is the rightful owner of that property. So the teardown is expected to start at 7 a.m. local time. Again, two weeks from today, 7 a.m. local time. That's also three days after Christmas. It's in the middle of the winter break when most of the kids are obviously home and not there. It's expected to take at least two days to complete this teardown, this demolition. The debate, of course, is whether this demolition should even happen at all until Brian Koberger's quadruple murder trial is long over. And so far, it doesn't even have uh, a day one. Some of the victim's parents have been adamant that that's a crime scene that should stay intact in case, like, the jury wants to go and see it. Maybe there's something that prosecutors missed and they want to go catch up on it. Maybe both the prosecutors and defense missed something, but both the prosecution and the defense agree with the demolition plan. And under the current plans, both sides still have a chance to visit the house one last time before it is flattened. And Brian Koberger's defense team availed themselves of that, expected to be there all day today as well as tomorrow. Measurements and photos and the like. That's where I bring in Caitlin Becker. She's been reporting on this story uh, from the beginning as well. Were you as surprised as I was when we got this announcement today? I really was, Ashley. I thought after they had delayed and delayed and delayed the demolition of this home, they were just going to leave it until trial went through. But once Brian Koberger waived his right to a speedy trial and that October date was no more, the university just decided that this was time. It was time to happen. They don't want the house there. It's a really sad reminder of what happened. They don't kind of want those sort of tragedy looky-loos coming by. So it does kind of make sense, but I did think it would last throughout the trial. I got word that, um, you know, I've always been concerned about how the, the families are treated and all of this, that they get the information before we do. And I did find out that 
they were told at 9.30 this morning. Do we have any idea when the official announcement came out to the public? The official announcement came out earlier today. I don't know the exact time and whether or not it hit the family before it hit the public. There was a press release up on the university's website that has been there kind of all day. But we do know that several of the families of the victims were really against the house being torn down. And I, too, am in that camp having covered this story at the scene. I think there is a lot that can be gained from seeing the house in person. You kind of remove the opportunity for a future jury to be able to do a walkthrough or to see the scene should they want that. So I definitely was in that camp that thinks perhaps it should have been there in case you needed it at trial for some reason. So the, you know, at the same time that this announcement comes out, and again, I think 9.30 this morning to to tell the families this and then almost, you know, almost simultaneously, maybe it's after, but come on, it's day of uh, to tell the families. It just feels like it's uh, quite a blow to them. It's just been, this has been hard fought for them. Um, And then on the same day, the defense is in there. Just the idea that the guy who potentially was in there, right? If he's guilty, he was in there. He created this horror and his allies are in there today on the same day that the families find out it's gonna be torn down. It's, it's just a, it's a lot to process. Do we know what they're doing exactly? What they're doing with the house, they're planning on raising the home to the ground, and we don't know exactly what they're going to do with that space, but the University of Idaho does plan on putting up a memorial to the victims. I don't believe it's going to be at that space. I think they really want to try to deter people from going there in the future. And it's interesting, Ashley, as you said, you know, this moment of this day and this timing, it makes me think of when the house will be raised to the ground. It should take a few days after the 28th, which brings us essentially to the 30th which is the one-year anniversary of Brian Koberger's arrest. Yeah, I mean, I remember. And it, listen, it, it sticks with me as well because it's the day, uh, this will be the day before my birthday, and Koberger's arrest was the day after my birthday. So, ugh, what a sandwich. Um, so what do we know about the defense uh, team and what they had planned for today and, um, and for tomorrow? Well, actually, we know they have already been to the house previously. They've already been to the property and inside, and they've taken, you know, photos and done some tests with whatever it is that they garnered from there. And they're doing similar things today and tomorrow. They're getting inside, taking measurements, taking photos. I believe they also want to look into possibly doing some overhead drone footage. And those are the kinds of things they're doing within the next sort of 24 hours. And we also know that the FBI had been in there in November to similarly go back, do another walkthrough, take more measurements, take more photos. And I know that the FBI, according to the university, had gotten in there and really wanted to use some sort of devices to do visual reconstructions of the home that could be used at trial. Mm, The idea that, again, um, Brian Koberger's people are in there, and it could be the the second time that Brian Koberger's had a connection inside the house. Could be. Uh, Caitlin Becker, thank you for this. I appreciate it. This is where I want to bring in News Nation's senior national correspondent, Brian Enton. He's been following the story, obviously, from the very beginning. He spent more time outside that house than I think anybody on this story. So this was a surprise. I mean, you just heard Caitlin and and me um, talking about how surprised we both were. I'm sure you were as well. Any idea why now? Why, why so sudden? I mean, instantaneous, that the announcement to the families, the announcement to the press, the defense is in the same day for two days, and then within two weeks it's down. Well, first of all, I think um, they got about a two and a half hour heads up, the family. It was about two and a half hours 
they got the call and then the press release went out where we all found out that there is an official date of December 28th. The timing uh, is interesting. I mean, just a couple of days after Christmas sort of makes sense because students won't be there uh, on campus. But I also wonder if they're thinking right between Christmas and New Year's, is that a time when, you know, the media will stay away, when everybody's busy, when they can kind of try to do this under the radar? Perhaps that's the reason they picked that time. But actually, I just want to remind you, like, the house is not in the middle of the campus. It's in a neighborhood right next to the campus. So I get that it's upsetting for the students and it's a distraction and it's hard to look at, but... It's not like they have to walk by it every day in the middle of the school. I still just don't understand why take the chance. You know, why not just leave the house up until the trial, like we've seen in other situations, like we saw in Parkland and all sorts of other cases we've covered. I don't understand. The, I just don't get the rush. Yeah, it's a it's hard one. I mean, it, and I remember when you gave us the tour and you showed us uh, when you stood in front of the house facing us and then walked, you know, opposite to the camera down the hill, uh, you literally within 50 steps were at the fraternity houses and Ethan's fraternity house specifically. So while they don't have to walk by, I suppose they could look up and see it there. But I'm, I'm with you. It's, it's always been, I'm surprised it's such a battle. I don't think the university wants to make money off the property. I don't think that's what this is about. But it, it sure is sort of a sad battle that this family's had to go through, the families uh, have had to go through, and not all of them agree. Um, you know, the, the, the Chapins, they haven't joined the fray um, in terms of families that, that want to keep that house standing. They've sort of not weighed in either way, publicly, that is. Um, but certainly the Gonzalez family um, have, have led the way with other family members saying, just keep it there. What's the what's the rush? What if what if there's a mistake in some like here we are, Brian? How many times have we seen FBI or police or members of the defense team coming back in the last couple of months to I don't know do some extra work they needed to do? Yeah, and who knows? They might need to do something else that they haven't thought of yet, or maybe the jury will want to see the house. Steve Gonzalez, Kaylee's dad, made a good point to me last month when I when I spoke to him about this. He said, if this stays in the county and they don't move it and they're trying to find a juror who is unbiased, it could very well be a farmer. And to him, a farmer isn't going to want to see a 3D image or a computer view. They're going to want to go out and see the house for themselves. And they're saying, well, the inside is different and it's been, you know, there's been chemicals and you can't walk around. But even the outside, actually, I mean, maybe they're going to want to stand on the street and say, what could you actually see from that window? Or what could you see from the front to the back of the house? Or what exactly does the road look like in that area compared to the house? I mean, they may not even have to go inside. Can I, let me ask you that. Because you have a very unique ability to say, I saw the digital replications of the house before I got there, before you landed for the first time in Idaho and went to that property. How different was it when you got there? What surprised you in person? Because you walked around the back, like you were taken all around the house, which other reporters haven't done. So you tell me how different it would be looking at a digital model compared to showing up there for the first time and, and, you know, getting the real feel. It's a very unique house. It's the three stories. Part of it is into the ground. It's a very unique driveway. I mean, you see in the video here, it's this steep driveway that goes up around the house. 
There's an apartment complex on one side. I mean, when I went, my first thought was like, it's just an interesting sort of little corner of this street that you can't really visualize unless you're there. And again, they may have questions. The jury may have questions about the outside. What could you hear uh, if you were on one side of the house? Could you hear things? You know what I mean? Who knows what they might want to want to feel out out there? That's why I just I, I don't I don't understand it. I don't understand the rush. I don't know if we can ask the um, control room to, to re-rack what they just aired, uh, because you were explaining it and, and the camera was going up that driveway. So I'm going to ask our director, Jamie, if he could re-rack that video. Um, it goes around from the front of the house where you stood and reported. Yeah. It goes around the left side of the house and goes up that steep driveway, which on the yeah, other yeah, side is that, like that apartment. Cliff right there. Yeah. Right. And the apartment's fairly close by, right? It's just on the other side of the street that, that the cameraman's on. Yeah, it's right behind the cameraman, and it's a big apartment building. Like, you wouldn't really know that so unless once, you're there. Unless you're there. Now, once that house goes down, even if the jury were to go, they wouldn't know where that, that outer wall is. And as we right. get past this car right here, you're going to come around the back of the house, and you're going to see Maddie Mogan's room. That's the room mm-hmm. on the, the top floor right there around this corner where that balcony is. So where the cameraman is, just behind the cameraman, is an apartment. So maybe a juror would say, well, how on earth could all that horror have happened in that room right there behind that window without these guys behind me knowing? But once that house is down, you're not going to have that perspective. You're not going to know any of that. that, Even the balconies are interesting. Again, it's just, it's a strange house when you're there. It's it's, it's, it's just an odd layout, and it's in a very strange part of the way that it's built into that little part of land right there. I just... I think that it could be important to someone. That's what Steve told me. I mean, there's there's people that will want to visualize it, um, and they're not gonna they're not gonna have the opportunity now. I mean, I guess something could happen between now and two weeks from now. Is it possible? Like an injunction could be filed. Could the families be preparing something? Could they really want to fight this? I think it's possible, um, but the the school seems hell bent um, on tearing it down. I mean, they do not seem to want to budge. And- and weirdly, prosecution and defense both agree. I'm still trying to get my head around that. I know that um, that uh, Shannon Gray and Steve Gonzalez are going to put out a statement tomorrow about this. And um, and so far, I'm hoping that we'll have um, them on the show, one or both of them on the program tomorrow, to, to give us their feelings and thoughts about what they've heard, um, whether they've gone into any discussions about it. But I'll be fascinated to find out if anything has changed. Brian Enton, thank you for this last-minute update and your reporting. Always appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, we have a major update in that Wyoming mystery that is so reminiscent of the Gabby Petito case, Katie Ferguson. She vanished during a cross-country road trip with her boyfriend. But remember how long it took the police to charge Brian Laundrie with Gabby's disappearance? Right, they didn't. He killed himself. It took that long. Well, Katie's SUV is full of evidence, and still police have been slow to bring charges against the boyfriend. Tonight, however, there are strong signs that is about to change, and I'll explain next. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. 
Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. The mysterious disappearance of Katie Ferguson from Wyoming. It's, um, it's a case that really got my spidey senses going the minute I saw this thing. Because it felt like we had seen the story before. It felt like we saw it with Gabby Petito. Katie vanished in early October, near the start of a uh, cross-country road trip with her, her boyfriend and the couple's two little girls. And we brought you this story before about Katie Ferguson, and it seemed like it was just a matter of time before that boyfriend, on again and off again, but on at this point, Adam Aviles Jr., uh, it was a matter of time before we figured he was going to be charged. And Katie's mother certainly thinks he should. Do you have theories on what happened? He killed her. I know he did. I, I know it. That's my baby girl. So uh, we still don't have a charge, but... Um, kind of looks like it's about to happen. Because in some court papers that were filed last week, Aviles' public defender, in a whole other case, um, asked the court for a delay. And this was the explanation. I'm going to quote. Mr. Aviles is a suspect in a homicide case in another jurisdiction. That's interesting. Kind of the first time we've... um, We've seen on the record that Katie is considered a homicide victim and that Aviles is officially a suspect. The case that he's actually in jail for at the moment is a federal charge of being a felon in possession of ammunition because police found ammo in the SUV that the family was traveling in from Alabama. Uh, That SUV was ditched in Wyoming, apparently after it ran out of gas. And though there was no trace of Ferguson in it, I'm sure, uh, well, it sure did look like a crime scene because there was a Glock pistol, uh, Clorox wipes, dried blood, two fired uh, rounds that were lodged in the passenger door. Oh, and the front seat, that passenger seat was actually missing from the vehicle. I should add that Katie and Adam's two kids are fine, thank God. They're currently in the care of relatives. But their mom hasn't seen um, a trace of Katie since a traffic stop October 5th in Arkansas. So I want to bring in Dave Ehrenberg, state attorney for Palm Beach County and former assistant attorney general. So I don't get it. Um, I kind of figured if you have a trove of evidence this big, Dave, it's not that hard to charge because it's really just a matter of time before you just sort of put all the pieces together and wait for the DNA testing to come back. Why do you suppose there's been this holdup? Good to be with you, Ashley. Your spidey senses were right as usual because generally when something like this happens, you look to a spouse, an ex-boyfriend, a Brian Laundry figure like this guy, Aviles. But prosecutors have to have enough evidence where they can believe they can get a conviction beyond a reasonable doubt. That's much higher than the police standard for making an arrest, which is just probable cause, a much lower standard. For prosecutors, if they act too soon before they really got the goods, then the clock starts ticking and the defendant has speedy trial rights and you can lose the entire case. So prosecutors are going to be a lot more cautious before they file the charges against them. But those charges are imminent. 
Yeah, I get the sense, certainly from those court docs. Uh, he's like currently a suspect in another jurisdiction, a homicide. Yeah, I can't imagine there's another body somewhere, but you never know. So here's the other thing that a lot of bloggers um, and podcasters have been sort of noodling. And that is that there were these two kids in the car. I think one of them is like around the age of one or, you know, some, a toddler, younger than a toddler, perhaps not even walking yet, according to Katie's mom. But the other one was somewhere around four years old. And that's, that's, a, that's a person who has, you know, thoughts and can articulate them. What is the challenge for people like you, for prosecutors, when you have a little itty-bitty witness like that that can be the only witness that really knows what happened? It's a challenge because you've got to convince a judge that the child is mature enough to be able to express uh, themselves, that they know the difference between truth and a lie. And you can testify if you're as young as three years old in the system, but it just depends on each unique case. What did this child see? Does the child have some really important evidence? And does the child... Uh, show enough credibility that you can put them on the stand. It is very difficult because even if you get that child to testify, they often have to look at their own father sitting there staring at them. So, you know, the the prosecutors want to have enough evidence where they're not going to have to rely on the four-year-old child here to make a case. Well, I I assume that once the testing comes back, we're going to find out the dried blood in the vehicle uh, was likely Katie. Where the seat is missing, I don't know. But we could see from that body cam that there clearly was a passenger seat and there clearly was a passenger sitting in it. And that was uh, that was Katie just days before there was no longer a Katie. So this mystery continues, at least for now. I'm going to have you back as soon as we do find out if charges are um, are leveled on this on this guy. Dave Ehrenberg, thank you, as always. Love seeing you. Great to be with you. Thank you, Ashley. See you again soon. Coming up, it has been 15 years since the remains of Kaylee Anthony were found less than a half mile from her house. And Casey Anthony was dubbed the most hated mom in America. All week long, we've been bringing you exclusive interviews with key players in that unforgettable case. And tonight, the man who presided over all of it, presided over the murder trial of Casey, Judge Belvin Perry. He had a truly unique perspective and says her case has changed everything when it comes to high-profile trials and the way Americans can watch. He joins me live next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. 15 years ago this week, the remains of Casey Anthony's two-year-old daughter, Kaylee, were found in the woods near the family's home in Orlando. Kaylee Marie Anthony would be 18 years old if she were alive today, maybe even in her first year of college. All week long, we've been bringing you exclusive interviews with key players in the investigation, in the prosecution, and in the aftermath, all of them sharing surprising details that we've never heard before. 
Tonight's guest is no different. He is the reason Casey Anthony's murder trial was watched by tens of millions of people for seven straight weeks back in the spring and summer of 2011. Judge Belvin Perry agreed to let the cameras into that courtroom, and here is a reminder of what the whole world saw. There is a smell of human decomposition in that car, not the garbage that was in it. I'm stating true facts of what I saw, what I observed, and what I went through that day, and what my feelings were. Neither my granddaughter nor my daughter were in the trunk of that car, and I'm grateful for that because I don't know if I could have dealt with seeing them back there. Did the police respond immediately to that second call that you made? Not fast enough. Okay. Do you know how much time passed between when you made that call and their arrival? It seemed like forever. Both sides uh, have engaged in what I call game playing. Okay? And this is not a game. And the reason the order was entered in the first place was because both sides were engaged in some form of it at some time. And the reason the order was entered is because I did not want to be at the position I am currently in now. Would a defendant rise along with counsel? Madam Clerk, you may publish the verdicts. In the circuit court for the Ninth Judicial Circuit in and for Orange County, Florida, State of Florida versus Casey Marie Anthony, as to case number 2008 CF 15606-0. As to the charge of first-degree murder, verdict as to count one, we the jury find the defendant not guilty, so say we all, dated at Orlando, Orange County, Florida, on this fifth day of July, 2011, signed four person. I was in the courtroom at that moment, and you could have heard a pin drop, and you could hear everybody bringing their chins up off the ground. That trial was pure gold for news channels and bloggers. Podcasts weren't much of a thing at this point. But the judge would come to lament all that attention, writing, quote, court proceedings are no longer news, but entertainment. And Judge Belvin Perry joins me now live. Um, Judge Perry, it's always so good to see you. Gosh, I felt like we became such good friends. We were, I almost changed my voter registration. I was there for so long. I want to ask you um, if you had any real choice in the matter uh, regarding letting cameras into your trial um, for, for Casey Anthony, because Florida is considered the sunshine state, not just for the weather, but also um, for transparency laws. I had no concerns, and I'm glad to be with you tonight. I think it was very important for cameras in the courtroom uh, because it gave uh, the citizens, the public, a bird's eye view of what actually happened uh, during that case, and they had the right to form their own opinion. So transparency in the court system was vital then and is vital now. Well, I'm with you on that one. Obviously, I've got a, a dog in the fight. But um, I do want to ask you if you think the cameras in Casey's trial fundamentally changed anything. For instance, would Casey, do you think, have been found guilty 
potentially if there had been no cameras in the courtroom? Ashley, there's no doubt in my mind that the outcome would uh, be the same. Uh, I don't think uh, the jurors played to the cameras. I don't think the jurors were influenced by the news media being there. The only people that I was concerned about being influenced were the lawyers in their behavior in playing uh, to the cameras. But, no, I don't think the jurors were affected. Today, whenever we see a, a high-profile trial on the horizon, for instance, you know, Lori Vallow in Idaho, and then we're going to stay in Idaho for, for a while, but Brian Koberger, the defense teams fight pretty uh, ferociously to have cameras banned. Whether they're concerned about pre-trial influence on the jury pool or just whether they think it's a, a circus atmosphere, every judge is different and has his or her opinion about the courtroom. But... If you take a camera out of the courtroom, don't you open it up only to the perspective of a blogger or an unprofessional journalist or an opinion, uh, you know, true crime uh, entertainment journalist um, to, to really be the only eyes and ears for the public in such a critical part of our democracy? You're exactly right. There's this phrase that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And you stand the chance of a blogger or, or some media person giving their own personal slant on it. By having cameras in the courtroom, the public is able to listen and evaluate exactly what happened and come to their own opinion. So I don't know if you were able to, to catch this, but um, a couple of days ago I interviewed a key player in this case who ultimately didn't end up being a key player 15 years ago. And, and I look back and think it's, it's a tragedy that he, that he didn't. But he was the guy who was hired by the, the bail bondsman. Uh, the bail bondsman who let Casey bail out, um, you know, before she ended up standing trial for, for this. Uh, he wanted to make sure he got his money back, so he hired a bodyguard to go and stay in the Anthony home with Casey for eight days. So the bodyguard says he was privy to some stuff. And one of the things he said he saw was George Anthony in utter desperation, begging, forcefully begging, Casey, tell me where the baby is. Now, if we had seen that in your courtroom, if we had seen him on the stand saying this, would it at all have been possible for Jose Baez and the defense team to promulgate the idea that George Anthony knew all along the baby died in the pool and hid the body and hid it from the police and was part of this plan all along. I mean, that, it sounded like a, a pretty legitimate observation that this, um, this bodyguard saw. It's a legitimate observation, but there's another take on that. Did George Anthony, if he was responsible, according to the defense's theory, that he took the body away and he disposed of the body? So the question would be asked, why did he have to ask her since he was the one that was alleged to have disposed of the body? Yeah. The, the, the interesting part is I, I asked the, the guy, did, just, did it look like he was acting uh, to try to put that bug in your ear? And he said, 100% no. This was, a, this was a grandfather and a father who was beyond, it was apoplectic and was beyond, you know, beyond, you know, consolation, trying to get the answer as to where the missing baby was. So it, it seemed to him there was not a possibility that 
he could have been involved in any other kind of scheme prior to that. But, you know, we'll never know because we weren't there. Uh, Judge Perry, I look forward to our conversations every year or two. I'm going to make it more frequent, more often. Um, <laughs> it's good to see you, and I hope things are going well for you in the, with the great firm of Morgan & Morgan down in Florida. Thank you for doing this. Everything is going great with for the people, Morgan & Morgan. <laughs> Look at you. Your boss is going to love you tomorrow. All right, Judge Perry, uh, joining us live. <laughs> See you again soon, I hope. Appreciate it. Take care and have a good holiday season. Coming up tomorrow, um, the Casey Anthony story that you have never heard or seen actually continues because the CSI technician on the case, Gerardo Bloise, who famously captured in a canister the smell of decomposition in the trunk of Casey's car, well, we asked the question. It was controversial then, but is it now? Up next, you trust them with your every fiber, your kiddo's pediatrician. So imagine how the patients of a Kentucky pediatrician felt hearing that police accused their doctor of paying a hitman for a murder. She's a well-respected pediatrician there, but now she's facing a decade behind bars. If a jury finds her guilty, police, they have it right. Well, guess how much cash she was willing to fork over for a cold-blooded killing. I have the amount right here, and I don't know if the target should be impressed or insulted. Full details in a minute. If you've got kids, you know what I mean when I say a good pediatrician might as well be part of the family. You literally trust that person with your children's lives. Now imagine families in Louisville, Kentucky, finding out that their trusted pediatrician is potentially facing years in prison for allegedly putting out a contract on her ex-husband. That would be her own children's dad. If the police have it right, Dr. Stephanie Russell asked her own staff members to help her find a hitman. And when a hitman was found, an agreement on a price was reached, $7,000. Um, and, and what allegedly kicked all of this off? Divorce, of course. It is always divorce. Uh, the ex had won custody of the couple's two small kids, and prosecutors say that Russell wanted those kids back. Allegedly, she went so far as to cough up half of the money, you know, for like what they call a down payment. And this next bit is another total head tilt. Police say Stephanie used those lab boxes that you often see outside the doctor's office uh, to make the $3,500 down payment drop. Like she put the down payment in a specimen box, they say, for pickup, uh, right outside the medical practice. But in a plot twist that we have seen before, the hitman turned out to be an undercover cop. It was an FBI agent, actually. Um, and Dr. Stephanie Russell is in a heap of trouble. Her trial is scheduled for next month. And she faces possible uh, 10 years in federal prison if convicted. So let's get right to Dante Mills. He's a practicing trial attorney in New York City. Um, does it ever cease to amaze you, Dante, <laughs> like, that very, very, very smart people can do very, very, very dumb things? You would think so, Ashley. But here's the, the, the reality of it. If she wanted her husband dead and she was afraid or could not do it, at some point she had to ask someone. Right. She had to put those words out there. Now, you can try and mask it like she did and say, well, I want a special delivery or, or a floor delivery and, and kind of mask it. But at some point, you have to put the question out there to see if you can actually get the response so you can get the results you want. 
I'm still waiting for the uh, affidavits that tell me how it was they got wind of this, right? Because, like, I've covered cases before where people have gone on the Internet and gone to a honeypot site that's like hireahitman.com, you know? <laughs> and it's really the what? cops just bringing them all in. And, but I don't know. But she asked her staff allegedly, right? Like, my staff's well, great, but I'm case, pretty sure they would never do anything like this. In this case, a couple of years back in 2018, she asked her gardener. And her gardener reported her to her ex-husband who told the police. Uh, she asked her gardener, do you know a, a dangerous person that's willing to kill my husband? Uh, the police did an investigation there and didn't find anything. But then they circled back once they got word that her staff heard the same words come out of her mouth. Do you know a hitman? Do you know any dangerous people that I can talk to uh, because I need them to make a, a flower delivery? Only have a couple seconds left, but where is the law broken? In 20 seconds or less, you can, you can fantasize about murder all you want. When do you actually break the law? And you can even talk about it, but what you can't do is take steps to get it done. So the law is broken when she took the step and left that down payment. Before then, it could just be words. She could just be saying, I was, you know, I was in anger and, and saying words. But once she left that down payment, she took a step to for it to happen. And that's when the law is broken. Okay, not to be a stickler for details, but I know the devil is in the details. And certainly, you know, at trial, it would always be the details that, that sink something. What if it never got picked up? Like, what if it went in the wrong box? Like, if, you, if, the, if the transaction wasn't completed, do you know what I mean? Like, I can, always, I can always think about half a transaction. But if it's not actually picked up by the agent, it, does she get off on a technicality if that happens? No, because you would have to believe that there's... Uh, evidence, text messages that says where she should leave it, the amounts that was agreed to. So you can match those two things, the, the placement, the amount, um, those details come together and it shows that she tried to take a step to make it happen. Step in furtherance. Advice to everybody. Don't even think it is the best idea. Dante Mills, always great to see you. Thanks for doing this. Appreciate it. Thank you. He just shakes his head. That's, that's advice enough. I'd pay him anything for that. All right, still ahead. Uh, a mother of five pleading for help after a burglar makes off with all her kids' Christmas presents. Bah humbug. Sure enough, her neighbors rally around her, replacing every gift that she lost. And it is the kind of story that makes your heart grow three sizes. Until someone takes a dagger and completely deflates that beating heart. Everything. Okay, just wait until you find out who the real Grinch was in this story and what the police did to her. Yes, Cindy Lou, there is video. It's next. I want to end the show tonight with a heartfelt little story just perfect for the holidays. I want to, but I cannot. I can only bring you half a story like that. Comes from Florida. Uh, Shanna Hudson, mom of five, came forward with this sob story. A real-life Grinch slipping through her window and stealing all of her kids' Christmas presents. I had went um, early Christmas shopping like I do every year for my kids. Eight fishing poles. They took some clothes. I bought clothes for my five kids. But now they don't have Christmas at all because some thief came and stole our well, Hudson touched her neighbors' hearts, and they responded in a big way, replacing everything that the family lost and proving that this really is the season of giving. And right there, my friends, is where the warm and fuzzy part ends. Now comes the true crime part. The Lee County Sheriff got wind that Hudson's story was a little stanky. 
After a search, deputies found all those supposedly stolen gifts uh, sitting nicely packed behind a dryer at a relative's house. So the sheriff decided to teach Hudson a lesson, hiring the Grinch himself to come to her house when they arrested her. As if it weren't lesson enough, the sheriff also released this video. You're welcome. Turn yourself in and bring us back our stuff so me and my kids can have a good Christmas. Mr. Grinch, you're a foul one. Friends, you don't have me. I wouldn't touch you with a 39 and a half a pole. You're a monster. Your heart's an empty hole. You got calling. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.